Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. In today's episode of Reaganism, Roger speaks with Congressman Ken Calvert, the U.S. Representative from California's 42nd District and ranking member of the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense. Roger and Congressman Calvert discuss the continuing resolution that Congress recently passed to avoid a government shutdown, as well as what investments the United States should be making to beat China in the competition over military innovation. Congressman Ken Calvert, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here at the Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. We're in the Mike Curb Media Room. Uh, Mike Curb, perhaps not known to all our listeners and viewers, but I believe was the last Republican lieutenant governor from California. You know Mike? I knew Mike. No Mike. I haven't seen him in a long time. Uh, He's a great guy and a great lieutenant governor. He's uh, one of the uh, Californian Republicans to relocate elsewhere. He was one of the first to go to exactly. Now it's happening uh, more more often. He he, he left a while ago. Now for uh, those in Washington, many know you as the senior appropriator, senior defense appropriator. Um, You've been in the House since 1993. You've witnessed a lot uh, and represent California's 42nd congressional district which includes Corona, California, right. my hometown. And the 42nd district is going to be subject to redistricting. What's the latest coming out of California on that? Well, uh, we have a commission in California that's doing the redistricting and, uh, it's kind of slow, a slow process, mainly because the census came in late. Uh, so, uh, just today and, and tomorrow, I, I believe that they'll be evaluating the congressional districts. Uh, so we'll be, uh, hopefully know the final outcome here by by December 14th and or or so uh, they must have it uh, in place by December 20th I think as the date legally so we'll know pretty quickly uh, you know so we've seen all kinds of maps all kinds of things so we don't know yet what, what's going to end up that's got to put an incumbent uh potentially at a disadvantage. Usually the incumbent has an advantage maybe not disadvantage but it may challenge your advantage because here you are we're in December. The election will be in November well, of 20. Primary, right? primary in June. And a primary in June. So that only gives you, you know, six months to figure out and to see what the new district might look like. Right. If you have new areas, you have to introduce yourself to the new folks. And so it uh, that takes time, takes money. And uh, and so the sooner we know, the better, uh, you know, we, we can react to whatever is going to happen. So hopefully uh, they get this thing done soon. But Corona, California will remain squarely within your district. Yes, yes. It wasn't, it's not the case for a few members. I, you know, they, they just last maps, they had Devin, they, they wrote Devin out of his home. This is Devin Nunes, who now just announced he's going to leave the House of Representatives and lead the Trump media organization, correct? That's correct, yeah. And uh, he's excited about it. Uh, he's leaving at the end of the month. Um, he's a great friend of mine, of course, and I, uh, you know, I feel good for him, but at the same time, we're going to miss him. He was a well, great member. we don't have many, uh, California Republicans here on the Reaganism podcast. It creates a special connection, um, for our institute and foundation to have an elected Republican from California, of course, to president Reagan, uh, Congressman Calvert, you've been in California politics for some time. Tell us about your connection to president Reagan, how it's 
kind of impacted your political life and, and, and your time in, in politics? Well, I, uh, I think I worked in most all of the campaigns. Uh, you know, 1966, I was a little young, but uh, I certainly in the 1970 gubernatorial campaign, I was a young volunteer for, uh, for Reagan. And, uh, and so I've been doing that ever since in both his presidential campaigns. Uh, Stu Spencer is a good friend of mine. Oh, wow. And, okay. Of course, uh, Chigian uh, is a good friend of mine as a communications director, and they're still good friends. I, in fact, uh, Stu, what, he's 95 now, I think, and uh, living out in Bermuda Dunes and uh, doing pretty well. Uh, and uh, Ken just retired, Ken Kachigian, uh, and uh, just, but I, you know, semi-retired. So, so are there... Reaganites, is it in California? Are they live and well, or? There's not that many of them left. I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, most everyone's, you know, gone on to their great reward. I think, okay. You know, so, uh, but, but they're, you know, you remember what a great group of folks. They helped me in my campaigns early on when I ran for Congress. And uh, so, that, know, what a, you know, wonderful person Ronald Reagan was and. Uh, well, you, you obviously admired uh, President Reagan in, in 2004, uh, shortly after he passed. You were involved, of course, you're in the Congress at the time, in bringing a statue of President Reagan right. to Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. Was that a hard thing to do? Uh, it was hard because each state uh, chooses uh, what statues they have representative of their state and mm. we had two uh, one of course father sarah was right there in the uh, in the statuary hall and the other one was somebody nobody ever heard of was thomas star king and thomas star king was the uh, yeah never heard of him he brought the unitarian church to california he kept Got california it. for siding with the confederacy in the civil war huh and so for that they uh, the statue was there and was there for 75 years and when uh, President Reagan passed, I thought, you know, it'd be appropriate if we exchange statues and send Thomas. Well, president, Thomas. governor of California, right? right. Send Thomas Star King back to California. So what you, we did, when the legislature, uh, uh, then Assemblyman Hollingsworth was very influential in, mm. in getting that done for us in the state legislature, both in the Assembly and the state Senate. And Schwarzenegger was a governor at the time, uh, or that probably wouldn't have happened. And uh, he he signed a. But did the California delegation in the U.S. Congress have to oh, sign off on it as well? Yeah, I mean, we were we were all together on that, including uh, Nancy Pelosi at the time. Uh, it wasn't too much protest over. Okay. Uh, Henry uh, Waxman wanted to. He wanted Caesar Chavez, but I, <laughs> we worked. Uh, we, Henry Waxman, for those who don't know, longtime Democratic congressman from California, uh, very active and. Uh, in, in, Democratic politics, so I'm not surprised that yeah. <laughs> perhaps he he, he raised a a, a a red flag. Yeah, of course, when there was a move to, to remove Father Sarah, and then of course Father Sarah is now Saint Sarah. So uh, hard to remove a saint, that, huh? That's hard to remove a saint. <laughs> okay, well, uh, it's uh, wonderful to see President Reagan when you go to Statuary Hall, and and thanks to you, Congressman, for helping get that through all the different wickets. Um, my, by the way, my, my chief of staff at that time, David Ramey, came up with the idea of putting a slab, a piece of the Berlin Wall on the pedestal 
hmm. of that statue, which is on the and people try to pick at it. You know, that's why they had to put the ropes around it because they were picking at the the Berlin Wall. They were trying to get a little piece of the Berlin Wall. Well, that um, we we've adopted that. I didn't realize it. Perhaps it started there. We give out, as you know, the Peace Through Strength Award. Recently, we gave it to a former colleague of yours, Mac Thornberry, as you know, and and a former Deputy Secretary of Defense, Bob Work, and the award, the recipient. Uh, gets uh, an eagle, and in the town, the eagle is a piece of the Berlin Wall, and it, it seems fitting to, of course, uh, President Reagan uh, saying, tear down this wall, and now we, we give out a piece of it and associate it with President Reagan. Let's jump to the politics of today. As I mentioned at the outset, you are a senior appropriator in the U.S. Congress. You are the senior Republican on the Defense Subcommittee, which consumes roughly about half of what the Appropriations Committee appropriates every year. Appropriations, of course, a fancy word for Congress's most important duty, which is to give the money to the executive um, and, and to spend it on, on the government's programs. The Congress recently was on the precipice of a shutdown. We had senators, particularly Republican senators, saying we should shut down the government the Democrats, of course, responsible, their majority in the House and the Senate, of course, control the White House. So President Biden did not want that. And the way they resolved this standoff was through a continuing resolution, which allowed the government to continue being funded, but not in the fashion it should be. Would you just take a minute for our listeners and viewers to explain what a continuing resolution is and perhaps why that is frustrating to you as an appropriator to have to live with it? Well, a continuing resolution means that we operate— uh, with the prior year's appropriation bill, uh, typically with some anomalies, but very little in this uh, CR. Uh, and uh, so, in effect, we're operating under the Trump budget, hmm. uh, with a you know maybe a little a little plus up, but certainly not uh, not the, what they were talking about in the normal appropriations process. And uh, right now, we we have this uh, continued resolution until February eighteenth. It's not the way to govern. Uh, and by the way... Because it was supposed to start October 1, correct? The correct. new fiscal year. Beginning the fiscal year. And uh, so we're operating... The Department of Defense is almost impossible to operate under continuing resolution. Very difficult. But the problem we have is this. Is the budget that the, the Democratic Party has proposed uh, was basically a cut to the defense budget. And they were increasing non-defense discretionary by 16%. And you got to remember now uh, that... The total spending, total outlays in the United States government, 30% of it is discretionary, which is what the Congress controls, and 70% of it is non-discretionary. That 70% non-discretionary would be these entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, and the like, right? That's correct. And, that, and you know, farm programs, on and on and on. 70% of total outlays. You know, so it, that's so it just, you know, we, we, the American people send their representatives to the Capitol— the constitutional duty is for them to appropriate, right. right, to manage the spending of government, and only 30% is controlled by the Congress. 70% is on autopilot. Do I have that correct? That's, that's absolutely correct, and uh, that's one of the reasons why spending is out, out of control. When people t start talking about, well, let's cut spending for defense to cut down the national deficit, defense now is less than 10% of total outlay. If you take non-defense discretionary and, uh, and, and defense and all the other monies in the mandatory programs, the total outlay for defense is less than 10%, significantly less than 
Now, give us a historical comparison. I mean, well, you know, if you're dealing with the Vietnam era, era or... Well, back, uh, yeah. yeah, it was, you know, usually, heck, it would be about 30%. Yeah, three times that amount. Yeah. And so we've continually have cut defense over the years to the point uh, where now, because you have a certain level of, of personnel, less and less of that's going to procurement for new weapon systems. The last, we're still working on the Reagan defense buildup, the same equipment that he right. replaced, uh, that had to be replaced. Now we're in a situation similar that President Reagan had when he came in in 1980, is that we need to replace a lot of this equipment. Just to go back to contextualize the, the craziness of our budget, obviously you've, you've work on this every day in the Congress. 70% is on autopilot is mandatory. 30% is discretionary. Roughly half of that 30%, maybe a little bit less, is defense. That's right. And the balance is the domestic spending. And you just share with us, the Biden administration proposed a 16% increase on the domestic side of that, right? That's, get the, that's correct. In addition to the Build Back Better trillions and, but, and infrastructure. Putting Build Back Better aside, all the COVID money, all the agencies right now in Washington, D.C. are awash in money. They don't know how to spend it. And so you've got, now you've got an uh, is Because of the emergency spending, because of COVID, the tri was like $3 exactly. trillion dollars in COVID spending, right? Right. right. And, the, you know, they gave money to the states. The states, most states are now awash in money. So you've got this inflation it's, uh, that, that obviously helped. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's uh, this is crazy. I, I'll tell you, funny. When I got here 30 years ago, okay. discretionary spending was 70 percent of the budget. So you arrived in 1993 in the U.S. Congress, and if you were an appropriator in that day, if you were the right. person responsible for appropriating funds out of the U.S. Congress, you controlled 70 percent of the spending on the discretionary side, which means the autopilot stuff was only 30%. So the total flip. That's correct. Over 30 years, you had the growth of the non-discretionary programs to the point now that it's 70% of outlay. So if this continues, there will be no discretionary budget. It'll end up eating everything. And, and by the way, you can raise taxes on billionaires to 100%, hmm. and that will not be enough revenue to pay for so this this autopilot spending the mandatory program is now you're saying hey we actually don't have the revenue to pay for it no, so we're borrowing money and this so, gets into the debt piece and that, that contribute you know the debt now is at 28 29 trillion dollars and growing and you know we're paying at this moment a very little interest on that debt because the Fed has basically zeroed out the rate once once inflation starts happening the Federal Reserve must raise interest rates Right. They say reload the gun to slow down this inflation rate. Now, then we're going to have to pay interest. So we'll, we'll pay. We're already, I believe, servicing. We spend more servicing the debt than we do on our national defense, I believe, as a percentage basis. Uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, just about that. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, crazy. What can we do about this? I mean, so where are the tools in the Congress? I mean, is this, is this you know, kind of reforming? Medicare and reforming Social Security. I mean, stuff that, you know, is kind of the third rail in politics. Right. Well, you know, people, you know, they, they always look to the discretionary side to balance it, but you cannot balance the budget on discretionary spending. You, you, uh, you have to touch the third rail of politics. You, ha you have to slow down the rate of increase. 
and grow the economy. The only way to get out of this mess is to, is to slow down the rate of spending on total outlay, both discretionary and non-discretionary, and grow the economy where you have more revenue coming in over time, you start chipping away at this debt. You can't do it overnight. So it's a red herring to go ahead and, you know, you see on the Senate floor, Bernie Sanders, let's cut the Department of Defense, then we'll deal with our budget issues, as you've laid out. That's that's roughly 15%, 10 to 15% of the 30% of the Congress controls world. 70% of it, which we don't really control, is what's driving the debt, and we're not doing anything about that increase. And, and by the way, under this uh, Build Back uh, Broke plan that the president— Build Back is, Broke, is okay. —is— is adding to these entitlements. And, and entitlement spending is increased every single year on automatic pilot. So look, to me, this is fascinating what we've done in government. You have discretionary spending, the stuff that Congress should appropriate every year, right. as you've outlined, smaller part of our spending. Then we have the mandatory programs, the stuff that Congress doesn't control is on autopilot, right. and that's now 70% of the total outlays. And then on top of that, it seems to be that the Congress uses crises to get at their big legislative priorities and spending priorities. COVID's an example, the infrastructure bill, perhaps you know, related to that, and now we have the Build Back Better. And what it does is it takes spending out of the regular order. I mean, is that have you have you kind of seen this over time? Obamacare might be another example of this. Yeah, because the revenue is not, so they have to borrow the money. Right? And so you continually borrow more money, and uh, it's some place it place you to base the dollar, and that's so it's 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 uh, heading for a, a monumental crisis. Uh, right now, we don't think about it because of COVID, and we uh, we're on emergency measures, but uh, things can happen in the world very rapidly. You know, we, things could happen in Ukraine, for instance, next month, and then uh, then we're forced into. Making expenditures we didn't plan on. Do conservatives, do American people, do your voters care about this? They know about this. Is spending an issue? Because the Trump administration, I mean, COVID um, seemed to be a, a, you know, a reasonable uh, case where you had to spend due to an emergency. But even before that, it wasn't like the Trump administration you know, was leading fiscal conservatives here. No, and uh, when you say do people care, people expect us to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And when things go wrong, they really care. They so say, why didn't you fix this when you had the chance? Why didn't you slow down that spending that you're talking about? Uh, because, uh, by the way, it's a balance. Mm -hmm. You can't tax your way out of this because if you do, then you're going to destroy the economy. I know the Laffer curve famously into the Reagan days. Art Laffer, right? right? You can only tax so much to maintain productivity. At the same time, you've got to pay down this debt. And you can't take all the money out of the economy paying this debt immediately. It has to be done like a mortgage on a house. So it can be fixed. You know, I'm, I'm going to put my optimism. There we go, a little Reagan optimism here. If you can fix this, you have to put together a plan and be, uh, and be steady about it, just like paying off a 30-year mortgage and say, okay, we're going to slow down the rate of increase in spending. And we're going to increase revenue, and with that, we're going to bring down the debt over time. It's interesting how the debt is surfacing in, in, in different ways. This is a concern, not just for those in Washington, but for business leaders as well. Uh, Elon Musk, obviously, founder of, of Tesla, um, what he says, people are paying attention to, particularly young people. And 
he actually came out against the Build Back Better Biden plan, which had great incentives to support EVs. I mean, government support for electric vehicles because of the debt. Um, and I'm curious if you're hearing, because not only do you have great expertise in, in national defense, but the innovation community, the tech hub, you, you talk to all these players. How much is this on their mind in terms of what government of should you, be doing? It's on, you know, anybody that uh, understands the future of the economy, is, they have to care about this. Because this can implode the, not just our economy, but the, the world economy. Look, uh, when, when Ford invented the internal combustion engine right. and, and, the, and, the, and the automobile, the United States government did not subsidize him. <laughs> now, we, we, now, Elon, for all due respect, and I, he's a good friend, but uh, he got a little help from tax credits on buying, on, on buying automobiles over the right, years. Right, right. But that was a, supposed to be a temporary program. And as Ronald Reagan f uh, famously said, you know, the, the closest thing to eternal life is a government, government program. program. <laughs> and so at some point, these tax credits must end. And, uh, and, I mean, they're a trillion-dollar market cap company now. I mean, right. they, they, I mean the mark, capital markets are giving them all the capital they need. Right. We don't need to do this anymore. We, uh, so uh, these tax credits, you know, are used politically sometimes to, uh, for your favorite industry. And obviously the environmental lobby is trying to change the, uh, you know, what, what we're— But it seems there. to me they've won, right? I mean, the, the, all the big— Car companies are going in this direction, right? This is, you know, you're going to get your F-150. That's an F, that's an EV now. But if uh, it's still, you know, uh, how do we get the power to power the uh, electric vehicles? You know, coal plants, uh, you know, oil. Right. Now, if we depend on solar and wind, there's not enough energy in order to, fund, to do that. So we got to go to nuclear. Right. So if the environmental lobby wants to do something about, uh, about this, we got to get... We have to start building nuclear power plants that have zero carbon output. Not acceptable to them. No. Yeah. But, uh, you know. well, we're not going to solve that here. We somehow digressed away from continuing resolutions yeah. to the environmental lobby. It just shows uh, your experience in reach, Congressman Calvert. But I was going uh, in the discussion of the continuing resolution you were about to outline the impact it has on the military and why it's a problem. Now, you said that you would maintain the Trump budget, which I kind of heard, well, not necessarily a negative thing. But there are problems for the military when you're in a right. continuing resolution. Up, let's say, just use an obvious thing. You can't enter into new starts. What's a new start? Okay, we have a problem with hypersonic weapons right now. We're behind. These so are the we, Mach 5. You can't detect weapons that China and Russia developed. We invented the technology. The Chinese stole the technology. They perfected the technology, and they deployed the technology. So they have several hundred hypersonic missiles. We have zero. And so say it one more time. The Chinese have several hundred hypersonic missiles and we have zero. And you say you're looking at me and say, well, how in the hell did we get in this position? Well, we were at war for 20 years. We cut the R&D uh, budgets substantially over half. Uh, we put aside these uh, ideas that we had or the Chinese stole the ideas. They they spent uh, they went to a mini Manhattan project and uh, perfected and deployed the technology. And we have PowerPoint slides. That's correct. And, uh, you know, we, we have now a culture in the Department of Defense is that the immediacy to them is we can get this done in three years. There we go. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we don't have three years. we got to get this program going. So that means uh, if we want to get this program going, we have a new start. 
means we've got to be able to sign contracts. You cannot sign contracts. Under so you can't sign a new contract when you're in a continuing resolution. This deal that was signed recently, as you outlined, takes us all the way to February. February 18th. So what's the prospect of Republicans and Democrats in February, middle of February, coming to agreement you, on appropriation? I'll tell you what the problem is. Yeah, outline it's, it for us. Okay, one, the, our friends on the other side of the aisle zeroed out defense uh, increases. So it was a flat. Or you, uh, voted, you voted against your own defense appropriations bill correct. for that reason. And because, it, you know, we, we don't have any. Now, the authorizers increased it based upon the Mattis uh, uh, National Defense Strategy, which was a, a net 3 to 5% increase per year in order to maintain some level of, of defense. Real growth here, right? Real growth. We're talking about real, 3 Over inflation. 3 to 5% net inflation. Right. And, uh, of course, the, the authorizing committees, both Republicans and Democrats, did that on the House side. And the Senate did it. But the, the, the House Appropriations Committee did not because the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party uh, doesn't believe in, uh, in the Department of Defense. But let me they, pull the thread on that because recently the authorizers, so we're getting a little washed in here, but the people who um, – say how the money should be spent, right? They do the policy piece of this, not the appropriators that have the all, all the power to say how much money you're getting. Chairman Adam Smith, Democrat, Washington, self-described progressive, still allowed for, I believe, you know, $25 billion above President Biden's request. So is there a f kind of, is it something unique to the defense well, appropriators no, here? Or? No, Adam is, you know, believes in national security. Mm -hmm. He understands the problem. Right. Unfortunately, uh, in the appropriations uh, perspective and the people who are serving on the appropriations committee, that's not shared. It's not, if they want to spend more and more money on social programs. Well, when do you say 16% increase there on, on the domestic programs? And you talked to your— And remember, 70% of total outlays is already right. going. Like, like you've educated us, you have the— Mandatory spending, which is on domestic, the 16% on the discretionary side, in addition to the infrastructure bill, in addition to the COVID money you've outlined. Right. What do they say in response? You say you just want at least parity. Yeah. Well, this is really simple. I mean, it's, okay. it's not an overly complex problem. We've got to break it down to the solution. The, my friends in the Democratic Party removed the high language in the appropriation process. Explain what that is. The Hyde language does not allow government uh, taxpayer money to be used for abortion. That's extremely important to the Republican uh, Party. We're not going to negotiate that. That's not going to happen. Uh, Hyde, we call that a legacy rider that has to come back in the bill. We're not going to, uh, we're not negotiating that. Uh, there's other poison pills uh, that, that our friends put in the bill they, they have to go out, just as they've gone out every year. Mm -hmm. So the legacy riders have to come back in. The poison pills have to go out. Defense spending has to come up. And non-defense discretionary has to come down. The negotiating part is how much does non-defense discretionary come down. And so, uh, and so that's what we should be. You know, when they say, well, we, we haven't started the negotiation, they know exactly what our position is. The Senate knows exactly what our position is. And so it's not that complex. They just got to sit down and figure out how much you're going to cut non-defense discretion. But these aren't questions of first impression. You dealt with this a fiscal year ago. You had appropriation bills. And that, and by the way, the legacy riders were in, the poison pills were out, 
We negotiated the uh, defense outlays relative to uh, non-defense outlays, and we made a deal, and that's what we got to do. And all along the way, you can't do any new starts in the Department of Defense, and the hypersonic missile gap will just continue zero. And that's, in our just, that's just one. We got one. a problem with satellites. We got a problem with ships. The Chinese right now has 366 ships. We're down to 295. They are they are building more missiles. They're building more planes. They're building more ships. They're building more everything. And all along the way, we, as you outlined, when we get the authority to build, it's taking us longer and it's less efficient, which gets to the a, a topic that came up at the Reagan National Defense Forum. I know you think about a lot. Secretary of Defense Austin talked about the so-called valley of death. It's when you get a startup or a new new project, maybe venture-backed, not one of the established defense companies, defense programs. They get some funding, but they can't quite get through later stage funding, can't quite go from being an experimental idea or program to a program of record, something the Department of Defense will support. What was your take on the Valley of Death? Is it really something the Secretary ought to have focused on? Absolutely. In the past, we had a process called earmarking, which you know got, uh, unfortunately, overplayed. For instance, the, the MQ-9 Reaper was an earmark. So this is, a, this is kind of one of these unmanned vehicles, semi-autonomous right? aircraft. Right. The culture in the Air Force said, no, 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 we don't want that. We need to have a man pilot. Is we got to have that guy in, in, in the uh, cockpit. Well, it's it's slow to change that. So it so started as the earmark. So somebody started, in the Congress said, "Let's fund this." We mandated that. So you <laughs> you shall do this. So now you don't have that anymore, and so you have these new industries coming in. Uh, most innovation, by the way, is done by small business, not by big business. Mm -hmm. Usually, big business buys that innovation, and then they then they integrate it and put it right, in. Right, put it in. So we need to allow these innovators protect their intellectual property, which we're not very good at doing. And, and to get them through this uh, valley of death, how do we do that? Create an innovation fund. We pick up the most promising technologies out there, and we fund them up to a point of procurement to get them through this, uh, through this evaluation period. And uh, right now, they can't afford to do this because sometimes these things take years. And, uh, and they either walk away or go bankrupt. So it would basically be a government fund that would identify a promising technology that may not have the capital, the patient capital, to allow them to reach to the point where the department would actually make the investment right. and, and procure it. Remember, the, the beginning capital has to be put up by that company. The private sector. Right. So they have to prove up that technology. If they prove up that technology and so we need to perfect it, then it will identify that, and then we'll put it through this a process, and hopefully a very quick process, and then that money will be expended to help get through this so-called valley and get to the point of... of what, about, what about the critic who would say, hey, this puts Congress in the position of, of picking winners no, and picking favorites? We're going to have an independent board that will look at the, those technologies. Some of what we have, you know, we have... DARPA, that it's not necessarily an innovation fund. They actually work with industry to come up. Right, they come up. Right, but but this, so we don't have. Uh, we're not putting our finger on the scale. We're, we're gonna we're gonna make sure that the best technologies that are available are chosen and and. So it's an informed choice here, and 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 they're not picking to the extent they're picking winners, picking ones that ought to be chosen, and 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 selecting the ones that are, are most promising uh, for for the military. 
one other piece on this, which comes up all the time, I want to take your view. It's would be a challenge for the innovation fund, but it's a challenge for a lot of innovators in the department of defense, which is the department of defense in some respects want to have their cake and eat it too. And by that, I mean, they want the innovation, they want the new product and they want the IP. They want to own the intellectual property. Government has an argument to own the intellectual property when they pay for the innovation. So if you, in your innovation fund, do you think the government ought to have some ownership of the IP? Usually that's a, a kind of a killer, a deal killer for those who want to use it, it in commercial it, sector. You know, I, I'll say that depends. It right. depends on what you're doing. I mean, if you're, if you're making a, say, a bomb, that's not going to have dual technology. Right, right. Uh, you know, so uh, Let's if, hope you're not. A, if you're making a better battery uh, that, that uh, will work uh, in the in the military and in the private sector, then that's different. Then you need to help them, they can license that technology. If the government paid for it, maybe the government participates in that license. But, but there has to be a methodology where that private sector company can profit. I mean, they're not doing this for fun. They've got to, they've got to be able to uh, succeed. What's the good example? I mean, you've, you've been looking at this for a long time, not just in the defense uh, arena, also um, you're, You've led the committees that oversee NASA and, and, and space projects. When have you seen a new entrant come in where the government has facilitated or not gone in the way of them entering in and allow them to succeed both in providing innovation to the U.S. government and saw them succeed commercially? Well, the obvious one is uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX. Well, what happened there? I mean, you were involved I was, in that. I yeah. was chairman of space uh, and aeronautics at the time. Uh, so that's the committee that oversees NASA. And, NASA, and, right. and this was a number of years ago. Elon uh, came to see me, and um, uh, he just had so, so, uh, sold a, uh, what is that, pay, whatever, to... to the pay bill, yeah. Uh, uh, oh. One where you, you can automatically pay your bills. Right, okay. And uh, he, for a couple of billion bucks, and so, you know, he was... He came in and said, he wants to get in the space business. I said, you know, that takes a lot of money. He said, I got a lot of money. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And it was his passion. And I think it still is his number one passion, by the way. I, you know, obviously, the automobile business is... All right. You know, I, I saw we, hopefully, the Tesla uh, shareholders won't be offended. Yeah. I, and SpaceX is still privately held. Yeah. And that... Because that's his absolute passion. And he'll be the first to admit... So, it. what did he need from government? What did you have to do? So, we helped him. Uh, Mike Griffin, at the time, was head of NASA. And we, uh, we helped him with get him a couple of launches. And so, contracts. And so... And why couldn't he get them on his own? Because he, well, he, one, he had to fund this technology. We helped, okay. him. we helped the United States government helped him get there that way. And why, well, why did we do this? Look, we had a monopoly on launch. We had the United Launch Alliance. I know my friends in Boeing and Lockheed are probably right. listening in and saying, hey, you know, but, but we had to get some competition. And, and at the time, I remember they would come in and say, you know, we're not making any money. It's, uh, we got to have. Well, any bit, any any business that has monopoly is not looking to see that go away. I yeah, mean, it's not entirely right. reasonable. Yeah, that's right. And so, once we got this technology going, once SpaceX started rolling, guess what? Launch costs. Went Quality down. goes up and price goes down. That's right, by half. By half. And, so, and fantastic knowledge means it's it's contributed to this kind of huge ecosystem now of of, of space, a trillion dollar sector. As a matter of fact. The, the government, we don't have to launch into low, low Earth orbit anymore. I mean, we just turn that over to the private sector. Where Do, do you have a, a vision of where you'd like to see that example, where the private sector takes over missions, 
it's a little more complicated. NASA is a civilian agency, but in the Department of Defense, of course, um, deals with life and death, national security, where private sector could take on more role, maybe perhaps in the software space. Where would well, you like you to know, see artificial it? intelligence is an obvious. Yeah. Topic. I mean, that's going to, that's already in the private sector. Uh, we need AI because these weapon systems are more complex uh, to make, to get to the decision. Can't, humans can't think. Right, and make things fully autonomous, not having kind of remotely piloted we're, things. We're moving in that direction. I know that there's moral concerns and everything, but, you know, we we got to go there. Our adversaries are already moving in that direction. Do you see those concerns about control uh, with autonomy, kind of the moral concerns you just articulated playing out in the Congress yet? Has that debate been had? Oh, we're having that debate. I mean, look, we got to control the on and off switch at the end of the day. Right. We don't want the, you know, the so-called... Someone's designing the algorithm, right? I mean, it's it's... Um, how far off are you, are we, in your mind, from seeing truly kind of AI-informed military platforms, truly autonomous platforms? Well, we have the beginnings of that, but uh, it's, it's moving rapidly in that direction. So, so in, your, in your role on the Defense Subcommittee, Senior Republican, you're seeing kind of what the military is coming up here and they're, and they're getting after it? You know, in, in public documents, you sure. know, swarming technology, uh, you know, having... Uh, Autonomous aircraft flying next to, say, an F-35, or autonomous ships next to, you know, where we can increase the numbers uh, and actually have lower cost because we don't have. So these are kind of like a little platforms that are cheap to make uh, that we can and attributable. You know, that we can we can lose them and and that's part of the right, strategy. Right. For instance, we you know, Boeing has their Orca submarine that they're doing now, which is an autonomous submarine. We have other programs I can't talk about, but but that. That type of technology. Are you optimistic is, we can get uh, there? I mean, that we're going to integrate. Has a, is, what did Winston Churchill the uh, the uh, two, two worst words in the English language? Too late. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, like I said, we gave up R and D budgets uh, for a number of years, and now we have to cut. We're in. A so position. you go back to we're budget at, now. We're talking about innovation, but ultimately it comes back getting the budget right to allow for right, this space. Have, and I, I would say that the, one of the most important parts of the budget is the R and D budget. Because we have to change everything about how we fight. The next war is not going to last long. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by it's not going to last long? Well, the uh, our adversaries uh, understand our weaknesses, and we understand theirs. And uh, uh, the types of weapons we have today uh, are horrific. And we don't want to get to a to a full blown nuclear war. So the war uh, in the future. Is uh, is to take out our technology uh, and, and first. If they do that first, we're game set match. Yeah. So that we have to be in the position that we can take out their technology, and they have to understand that that's they have to understand that capability that we have it. Well, you mentioned the wars of the future. I want to go to war of the past, um, just because you're so outspoken on it. This past summer. Of course, the United States withdrew from Afghanistan. That was a decision by President Biden. It was his decision. Um, the way that decision was carried out, you know, most people, American people, in our Reagan National Defense Survey, show that it was it was done in in just a just a, such a poor fashion. It was a failure. Um, but tell us about your view of that withdrawal, why, why you came out so forcefully against it. You, you said we had follow on responsibility to the population in Afghanistan. And I'll, I'll read you your, your quote here. 
just as we honor our obligations in South Korea, Japan, Germany, Kosovo, Kuwait, and other locations around the world. So referencing other conflicts where we still have U.S. military presence, you felt we had that obligation to Afghanistan, too. And he said it remains in our strategic interest. Explain that. Why? The, uh, that area of the world has been, the unfortunately, the, where most of these terrorist acts in the past have been hatched. Uh, so we went into Afghanistan for obvious reasons. We, uh, right after 9-11, uh, our target was Osama bin Laden. And uh, at that time, we didn't know that uh, he, would, he went into Pakistan. He can't make me, uh, that the Pakistan didn't understand that he was there. That's kind of, I think they say that to you. Okay. But nonetheless, um, we went into Afghanistan. Um, we uh, we brought the level of, of war down. Uh, it's a, a difficult place to control. I'm not saying that we should not have withdrawn. It's the way we withdrew. Got it. And and I think we should have kept a presence there. Some form of residual force. And I always thought that we should have kept. Bagram. Our NATO allies thought we should have kept Bagram. So this is the air base that was critical. Right. And look, it's 500 miles from the Chinese border, 300 miles from the Pakistani border, two nuclear nations. We have no base in any of the stands. Central Pakistan, Asia. Kurdistan, yep. So this is a strategic no. argument. It actually is separate and apart from what we owe to Afghanistan, just in terms of our national security interests. Right. The the Withdrawal was a strategic failure in more, in more ways than one. Not just that. It sent a message to our adversaries. Right. Uh, Russia and China. And don't make any... They are our adversaries. You're not using language of challenge. Yeah, this right. is a, yeah, this, uh, yeah, this stepping or whatever some people <laughs> like to use. Uh, this is... They now uh, are of the thought, which is a mistake on their that they can advance on the United States' interests. And this situation in Ukraine is serious. We haven't had a war in Europe in a long time. Right. I'm afraid we're going to see one. So it's the 175,000 Russian troops on the Ukraine border at the time of this uh, recording. Yeah, they're not there for Christmas vacation. <laughs> and uh, not just troops. And so um, we can end up with a full-scale shooting war here relatively soon. And once something like this happens... You don't know. It, it, sometimes it's difficult to control. You know how it's going to end. Right. The Poles obviously have a long-time hatred of the Russians. I don't think they're, they're uh, anxious to have Russians on their border. So. The autocrats are definitely testing, and, and uh, it's a good point in terms of how Afghanistan plays into that larger geopolitical picture. We're going to transition to our, our lightning round where we end the podcast. Obviously, uh, President Reagan understood how you challenge and compete with autocrats, um, particularly in his day, Cold War, Soviet Union. Give us your favorite book on President Reagan, your favorite Reagan speech or favorite Reagan quote. You can give us all three, two, or just one. We'll start with the book. Reagan Diaries, I thought that was very enjoyable. Good one. We love that one here. Uh, was there a particular speech or quote that comes to mind? Time to choose. I think that was his iconic speech. 1964 launched him in yep. California. Right. That is, it, you, you can give the same speech today. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and is there a quote that stands out to you? I think the one I said earlier is, is uh, the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. We'll leave it there. Congressman Calvert, thank you so much for thank being on the show. Good to see you, Roger.
If you enjoyed the conversation, make sure to subscribe to Reganism wherever you listen to podcasts. To watch this episode in video form, please go to youtube.com slash Foundation. Thanks for listening. Thank you.